Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of verbal and sexual assault and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Julius Shacknow looked remarkably unremarkable for the Messiah. Middle-aged and pot-bellied, with scraggly black hair and a beard tinged with gray. However, as he sat in front of some scattered chairs, his voice boomed, godlike, across the rented auditorium in Meriden, Connecticut. In a low tone, he proclaimed, I am the Son of God. This is no boast, no baloney. I am the real thing. I don't have to prove anything to you. You must prove yourselves to me. His audience of half a dozen or so suburban teenagers were perched on folding chairs as if gathered for a school assembly. The more he spoke, the more captivated they were. They grew quiet, rapt. He had his young audience in the palm of his hand, promising everything from changed habits to good grades. A 12-year-old boy perked up at this. He asked tentatively, You mean, if I believe in you, I'll get all the right answers on my English test tomorrow? Julius looked deep into the boy's eyes. For a moment, it wasn't clear if this curiosity would be rewarded or rebuked. Then a smile spread over Julius's lips. You got him, he said. The boy beamed as if Santa had just promised to bring him the thing he wanted most for Christmas. He sat a little taller in his folding chair, more confident now that he was on the same side as God's son. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll meet Julius Shacknow, known to his followers as Brother Julius. We'll discuss how he went from a poor Jewish kid in Brooklyn to the sinful Messiah leading a group of hundreds in small-town Connecticut. Next week, we'll tackle the legacy of abuse that carried on even after Shacknow died in the mid-1990s, including the deadly power struggle between his ex-wife and the group's second-in-command. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. 
The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Political instability, international conflict, massive loss of life. When the world is at its most unpredictable, many will look beyond their understanding for answers. The human need for stability has unmatched influence. The 1960s and 70s were rife with spiritual seekers, looking for meaning amid a turbulent time in history. Ready to capitalize on this confusion were several manipulative people eager to take advantage of the vulnerable, abusers like Julius Shacknow. Born to a poor Jewish family in 1924, Julius Shacknow spent his early life in Brooklyn, New York, Arriving just five years before the start of the Great Depression, most of Julius's early memories were of waiting in relief lines with his mom, or of spending time with his alcoholic father in raucous pool halls. <laughs> but even that turbulent life didn't last. By the time Julius reached 11th grade, both of his parents had died. To escape life as a poor orphan, Julius joined the U.S. Navy in 1942. During World War II, enemy fire hit the ship he was assigned to. Julius was injured and sent to recover in the Naval Hospital in Norfolk, Virginia. During this time, Julius met 22-year-old Elsie Jacqueline Belleville. Just six weeks later, the two were married. The couple welcomed their first son in 1945 at the Brooklyn Naval Hospital. But Julius shipped out to war once again, this time in Guam. By 1946, Julius had achieved the rank of Radio Man First Class. But despite his promotion in rank, Julius was far from a good soldier. He often felt restless and was prone to anger. Many in his company viewed him as a troublemaker. Julius used drugs, started fights, and went AWOL on multiple occasions. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Research has shown that having an alcoholic father can have many negative effects on sons in particular. Fathers with alcohol abuse issues can result in sons with poor self-regulatory strategies. This means they may struggle with interpersonal interactions and empathy. Poor self-regulation strategies also lead to problems controlling emotions, such as fear, frustration, and anger. Anger in particular can become a coping mechanism for children of alcoholic parents. A study in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs found a relationship between a father's drinking and the development of anger issues in the child. While not everyone with an alcoholic father experiences these effects, it certainly seemed true for Julius. However, all that changed when at 22 years old, Julius had an out-of-body experience. Julius lay on his cot in Guam, suffocated by the tropical island heat. Suddenly, his vision blurred until everything around him looked like bright white light. It swirled around him counterclockwise. 
When things stopped moving, he still could see, but somehow he knew he'd left his tiny tent. A soft, gentle voice spoke his name. It seemed to come from nowhere and everywhere. Julius, my son. A deep sense of knowing told Julius that it was God who then said, I have called you at a very special time of your life. You will help me close the world in your generation. God had chosen Julius to lead the battle against the evil that had been taking over the earth. Julius's mission was to bring about the second coming of Christ, and therefore, the end of the world. From childhood, all Julius had ever known was suffering, neglect, and death. Even after traveling the globe, Julius saw these maladies everywhere. He could see why God thought it was time for the apocalypse. To prepare for the mission, God next instructed Julius to read nothing but the Bible for five years, promising he would come to know everything. Apparently, God didn't tell Julius to keep this vision a secret. It didn't take long for the Navy psychologist to hear about Julius's strange story. After examining Julius, the doctor sent him to the Naval Hospital for a psychological test. Eventually, Julius's commanding officers honorably discharged him for behavior too questionable for the Navy. After his discharge, Julius moved his wife and two sons to Los Angeles. There, he set about following God's mandate. He briefly attended the Bible Institute of Los Angeles in the early 1950s. However, for unknown reasons, he left without graduating. But that didn't signal the end of his studies. Julius continued to read the Bible voraciously and began apprenticing under local fundamentalist preachers. He began to adopt more conservative traditional practices, like abstaining from alcohol and many forms of entertainment. In addition to more traditional conservative practices, Julius also forbade Christmas and other religious holidays. His wife Jackie had been raised Methodist and struggled with some of Julius's new strict beliefs. Eventually, the differences became too great. Jackie returned to Virginia with the boys and filed for divorce. In an attempt to reconcile his marriage, Julius moved to Richmond, where he became a pastor for a small congregation of about 50. Initially, he preached standard Christian fare, but after a few months, his sermons began to deviate. Julius announced that he'd been receiving revelations from God about the end of the world. When his fundamentalist teachers in Los Angeles found out, they were outraged. Initially, Julius repented. He made a public confession that he had been wrong and retreated to the West Coast without his family. After some time back in California, Julius received an invitation to preach to the School of the Prophets, a Pentecostal group in St. Louis, Missouri. This group embraced the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy. They readily welcomed Julius into the fold and celebrated his supposed powers of speaking with God instead of refuting them. He stayed with the group for a few years, rising through their ranks. Then, in 1955, he met Mary Smith through the church, and shortly after, the pair married. Despite some hiccups along the way, everything seemed to be going according to God's plan. Then Julius's divine future was all but confirmed. One night, God walked through Julius's bedroom wall. He reached out and touched him, feeling the soft give of God's stomach and the bony protrusion of his ribcage. 
God reminded Julius of his mission before disappearing. After that visit, Julius found that he could heal people just by speaking with them. He became a huge hit at the church's revivals, where people desperate for his gifts crowded in. But as his supposed power grew, so did his ego. Not long after his visit from God, he was accused of attempting to overthrow the reverend and cast out by the church. More troubles followed. In 1959, Mary's third pregnancy faced complications, resulting in stillbirth. According to Mary, this added to Julius's religious turmoil. It must have been disheartening for Julius to have been blessed with the ability to heal, yet be unable to save his child. Not long after, Julius's marriage hit the rocks. He gained a reputation as a ladies' man, and Mary filed for divorce in 1961. After two divorces, it seemed marriage might not be in the cards for him. Feeling defeated, he moved to Tennessee for a Bible camp, and then later returned home to Brooklyn to continue his mission. There, as if by a divine miracle, he met Joanne St. Beatrix in 1962. In another vision, God told Julius that Joanne was meant for him. Together, they were the two witnesses foretold by the book of Revelation. Julius represented the word of God, and Joanne the Holy Spirit. From that moment, Julius knew his journey to follow God's command would be taken with Joanne. And in 1968, God appeared once again to tell Julius it was time to go public. According to Julius, God said, The world has been waiting for you. You will understand. Hold revivals. Julius let the weight of these words sink in before feeling a sense of purpose wash over him. In the next few days, he set about spreading God's word. He needed to tell everyone of the coming end of the world. In the process, he became one of the most powerful fringe religious leaders in New England. Coming up, Julius spreads his message to the world. The CIA. They're the first line of defense for the United States, analyzing intelligence to thwart any possible threats and keep us safe. Some of their involvements are made public, and others aren't. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and in honor of America's birthday, we're uncovering the cases you were never supposed to know about in the new series, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. From international assassination plots and mind control experiments to catastrophic cover-ups and secret societies fit for film, sift through the agency's most questioned and controversial affairs. Each week, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition exposes the covert operations intended to protect us from conflicts, but end up creating conspiracies. Where does the truth lie? Where do the lies end? And how much do we really want to know? Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. 
Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. In 1968, 44-year-old Julius Shacknow received another divine message from God to spread the word of the coming end times. What started with intimate lectures in living rooms turned into large gatherings at local parks. Julius drew a lot of attention with his long beard and flowing robes. He certainly looked the part of God's prophet. More and more people came to hear him each time he spoke. He said that the chaos of the times signaled Christ's return. The impending apocalypse struck a chord with many. By 1970, U.S. forces had been in Vietnam for years. Massive student protests erupted around the country, causing chaos in the streets. That year, Julius had a special announcement of his own. He had finally worked up the nerve to ask God the question that had been nagging him from the moment God called upon him. Was he, Julius, the one and only Son of God? God responded, there never was another. Julius would later begin calling himself the sinful Messiah. He had been the worst of sinners, but he'd overcome all of it to become a perfect being. It was a relatable tale that drew in many people seeking answers and solutions in tumultuous times. People like Stephen Mell, a 19-year-old medical student in Massachusetts, raised in a proper middle-class home by a devout Catholic mother. Stephen was already highly religious. Stephen had turned to God for some sense of understanding, but came up empty. One night, Stephen met a man who claimed to have seen a prophet in, of all places, Connecticut. Curious, Stephen convinced a friend to take him to see for himself. Under a stand of trees, Julius held court. Stephen sat among the crowd gathered in the grass, captivated by Julius's deep voice and piercing green eyes. He told them these were the end times. His mission was to, as he put it, restore total truth back into the world. Desperate as he was for answers, Stephen wasn't convinced by his words alone. But after the sermon, Julius called forward those who wanted healing or blessing. Stephen watched as person after person knelt before Julius. With a mere touch to their head or shoulders, they collapsed to the ground, vibrating with some kind of power. Stephen stood there stunned. He'd never seen a Catholic priest have this effect. These people appeared completely changed by Julius's touch. After this display, Stephen felt a connection to Julius and his message. Shortly after, Stephen dropped out of medical school and became an anointed follower. He even brought his mother to hear Julius speak. She, too, converted immediately, claiming Julius had healed her of a chronic case of psoriasis. Julius's following exploded seemingly overnight. Close to 300 people traveled regularly to attend his daily Bible meetings. He called them the work because they represented his mission to bring about the second coming of Christ. 
Julius kept details about how he intended to bring about the apocalypse vague. But in the meantime, followers were meant to study the Bible and obey his commands. Julius's complex theology mixed traditional Christian, Judaism, New Age philosophy, and even science fiction. His sermons were marathon events, lasting anywhere from 4 to 12 hours. Followers were awed by his apparent mastery of scripture, which lent him an air of expertise. But always, his gospel centered around the imminent apocalypse. Everything came back to the destruction in store. Followers were warned to make sure they were always following God's commands as delivered by Julius. Otherwise, they would meet the same fiery end as the rest of the sinful world. Eventually, most of the believers were so taken by his message that they did whatever it took to move closer to Julius, who had recently settled in Meriden, Connecticut, to continue the work. According to Julius, he had moved the group to Meriden, Connecticut because it sat atop a seven-mile radius that God had imbued with the greatest potential for good. But he warned about a fog of evil hanging over the area. He told his growing band of followers that this was where their work fighting the devil would begin before expanding around the world. Julius made endless demands of his followers. He forbade them from wearing the color black because it was the color of the devil. Women weren't allowed to apply makeup, which according to Julius, only loose women did. He handed out robes for people to wear at the daily Bible meetings, along with a special pendant that marked them as part of the group. In classic cult leader fashion, Julius gave members new names as they joined. According to Julius, these names represented the qualities of God that particular members embodied. Followers were encouraged to think of themselves less like human beings and more as vessels for these godly qualities. All of these rules served to widen the gap between believers and non-believers. Everyone in the work was holy, and the rest of the world was evil. Such simplistic thinking was comforting to many potential followers, especially to young, impressionable people like 23-year-old philosophy student Bill Rocap. One day, a friend took him to one of Brother Julius's meetings. Bill sat mesmerized as Julius spoke for four hours about his Holy Father's kingdom. Julius seemed knowledgeable, speaking with the confidence of Bill's professors back at school. Yet it was a personal encounter at the end of the meeting that turned Bill into a hardcore believer. A line formed leading to the stage where Julius anointed people, drawing the sign of the cross on their foreheads with holy water. After his turn, Bill stood to leave the stage when Julius called out to him, You know that girl? I sent her to you. Get her back and do it right. Bill's mind whirled. Julius couldn't possibly have known about the woman Bill had just broken up with. They had lived together, but Bill wasn't ready for a serious commitment. Even more amazing still, about a week later, that woman turned up in Connecticut and joined the work. When Bill told her what Julius had said, the two immediately rekindled their romance. Bill soon became one of Julius's most dedicated followers and shortly after secured a spot for himself within Julius's new inner circle, his own 12 apostles. With the work rapidly expanding, Julius needed trusted men to help manage the group. He named former business developer Paul Sweetman as chief apostle. A married man and a father of four, Paul, along with Julius's wife, the Holy Spirit Joanne, completed Julius's trinity of leaders. 
With this leadership structure in place, Julius could now begin what he called his special work. While Julius's main project still centered on the end time, this special work seemed much more focused on earthly pursuits, and it constituted a test for his most trusted followers, like Bill. By this point, Bill had been Julius's follower for nearly a year. The woman Julius had commanded Bill to get back had since become his wife, who also quickly bought into Julius's teachings. Julius told his followers that, as God's son, he had been tasked with spreading God's love to women, physically. According to Julius, sex with him was the highest blessing a woman could ask for. Bill's wife loved Julius wholeheartedly, but many women didn't feel the same way as she did. To refuse Julius was to refuse Christ. If anyone dared question the godliness of this act, Julius had a well-rehearsed response. He told them, I am a mirror of what's in your heart. So if right now you are accusing me of lust, it is lust in you. To prove his dedication to this special work, Julius bequeathed Joanne to Paul Sweetman in a public ceremony. Concerningly, Paul's own wife had died just a year before in a mysterious fall at home. Julius told his followers that his ministry was all-consuming, so he entrusted Paul with taking care of the Holy Spirit, Joanne. There's no official record of a marriage between Joanne and Paul, but from the day of the ceremony on, she went by Joanne Sweetman, and the pair were rarely seen apart. With Joanne handed off, Julius focused on his special work while expanding his group as a whole. In 1973, his company, The Anointed Music and Publishing, TAMPCO for short, began in earnest. They rented five rooms from a public building in downtown Meriden, printing religious materials and pamphlets about Julius and the work. Julius also put together a band called The Anointed. They produced two albums. God is Alive, the single off their first album, even made it onto popular music charts. 150 members, many in their late teens and early 20s, worked at the publishing house for free, 20 hours a day. They prepared and ate meals in the auditorium-style meeting room. Every day at 3 p.m. sharp, they joined together for prayer break. The hours were grueling and the work thankless, but one of the major tenets of Julius' theology was that what one did on earth determined their place in the afterlife. A person who lived well, abiding by Julius's gospel and spreading his message, would be rewarded in the kingdom of God. Punishment awaited those who failed, both eternal and at Julius's hand. While not exactly profitable, the company successfully spread Julius's message throughout the region, and hundreds of devoted followers from around New England funneled funds to Julius's cause. Yet the increased publicity from the company's work brought with it plenty of criticisms. In 1975, the Meriden Record Journal spoke to a woman who, for reasons of anonymity, went by Phyllis. Phyllis, a young mother of six, lived in Cheshire, Connecticut. Her husband, who wasn't named in the article, but we'll call John, followed Brother Julius. For a while, things were okay. John didn't force Phyllis or the kids to come to meetings, but as John got more involved with the work, he took a dark turn. One evening, John lined the six children up in the living room and told them that if he had to choose between killing them and denying Julius, he would have to kill them. 
In addition to traumatizing their children, it appears that the pressure to obey Julius affected John in other ways. John withdrew the dividends on the kids' insurance policies, borrowed against the policies themselves, and ran up massive credit card debt. All of that money went to Julius. The final straw for Phyllis came when John tried to sign over their family home. Fed up, she filed for divorce. Stories like John's were common among devotees. Julius demanded everything they had, and they gave it, no matter the cost, to ensure their place at his side at the end of the world. After this first bout of negative press, Julius still managed to slowly expand his following. However, the hits only kept coming. Over the next few years, public outcry against him grew, and his business slowed. In 1976, Tamco shuttered its doors after just three years. Julius erupted. His followers had failed him. They had failed to work hard enough to sell enough for Julius's message to take hold. They all faced his wrath, which he called the rebuke of the Lord. This abuse is a common tactic of control that works similarly in cults and abusive domestic relationships. Psychologist Dr. Mark Banchik writes that violent intimate relationships come with some level of regression. The more regressed a person becomes, the less likely they are to find the courage to leave. Cult leaders systematically tear down their followers' sense of self with tactics such as verbal abuse. When a godlike figure or loved one says terrible things to and about someone, a part of them will internalize those beliefs. This triggers feelings of shame and guilt, robbing them of their self-esteem. Julius's rebuking always happened in public. Anyone could be subject to the scathing verbal abuse at any time. Followers were terrified of being targeted for one of Julius's tirades. His baritone voice would boom like thunder, hurling insults and curses at his unlucky victims. Members were ready and willing to do anything to stay on Julius's good side. After Tamco failed, Julius knew he needed to regroup. He turned to his chief apostle Paul for his business knowledge. The former business developer had the know-how, skills, and, thanks to Julius, the workforce to build a real estate empire that would catapult the work to new heights. Up next, Julius's group hits new heights, while Paul and Joanne take control of the group's financial reins. Now back to the story. By 1979, 55-year-old Julius Shacknow had amassed a following of nearly 500 idealistic, spiritually seeking young people in Meriden, Connecticut. As the sinful Messiah, Julius preached that his coming signaled the apocalypse. He claimed that whoever denied him would be doomed to a fiery end with the rest of civilization. To fund the spreading of his message, Julius turned to chief apostle and former business developer, Paul Sweetman. First, Paul started a company called Countywide Construction. Staffed by members of the cult, they built tract homes for the city. Those followers who weren't cut out for difficult physical labor were put to work for the group's second business, a real estate agency, J.N. Realty. Together, Paul and Joanne, Julius's former wife, became the financial leaders of the work. To ensure success, Julius continued the intimidation tactics. Breaks or days off were unthinkable. Julius bellowed, 
Can you imagine an angel going up to God and just one time saying, no, no, get another angel to work for you today. We're not working. The Machiavellian strategy paid off. Over the next year, Julius's followers brought in $100 million in sales from building and selling houses. But the money first had to go through Paul and Joanne. Once a week, Joanne decided how much any given member or family needed. Despite doing daily backbreaking labor, followers were paid almost nothing. Devoted follower Stephen Mell had worked hard for Countywide since its start. He had recently married a woman of the work who had a job outside of the group. It was decided that one income was more than enough for the young couple, and they refused to pay Stephen. If anyone dared complain about their financial struggles, Julius turned it around on them. Just as their doubts about his special work spoke to their character, money troubles were a sign of their lack of faith. Worthy believers received God's blessing. Apparently, Julius, Paul, and Joanne were the only ones in good standing with God. While the others worked and sacrificed, Joanne and Paul owned a large house with room enough for their combined 11 children, who went to expensive boarding schools. Joanne shocked some when she began driving a brand new car. The hypocrisy was blatant enough to plant seeds of doubt in followers' minds. Despite his decade of dedication, Stephen had never been so broke and exhausted. So when Joanne approached him about her own special work, inviting him up to a bedroom, he was appalled. He'd devoted his life to the work, and Joanne didn't seem all that interested in the end time or spreading the message to save others. To compound these feelings, Stephen's own wife came to him not long after. Julius had asked her to join him at a nearby hotel sometime. She didn't want to do it, but she was terrified of Julius's wrath should she say no. At that moment, Stephen finally saw through the spiritual facade that masked Julius's sexual misdeeds. Free from Julius's spell, he and his wife decided to flee. As they packed what little they had, Stephen couldn't believe he dedicated his 20s to such a charlatan. Unfortunately, Stephen's mother couldn't be convinced to come with them. She'd fallen too far under Julius's spell. After the couple left, his mother cut off contact entirely. According to Julius, anyone leaving the work was choosing hell and death. They were damned and evil like the rest of the world, no longer under his protection. Threats like this are common in religious cults. The loss of salvation is sometimes enough to keep people in the group for years. Finding the strength to leave isn't always an immediate solution, however. The book Cults in Our Midst by Margaret Thaler Singer and Yanya Lalich goes into detail about the many difficulties former cult members face once on the outside. They're often plagued by an internalized fear of doom. What if leaving the cult had actually damned them to hell? This anxiety exacerbates the person's already weakened self-trust. The authors write, Former members' inability to trust is one of their most frequent and vivid problems. Not only do they realize that they trusted too much, but also they often end up blaming themselves for ever joining the cult and for feeling inadequate about their decision-making abilities and judgment. Though losing his mother was certainly painful, Stephen was lucky to have his wife. While many ex-cult members are left to navigate the transition on their own, at least they had each other. 
Like Stephen and his wife, others slowly trickled out of the group. Not many, but enough that Julius must have been desperate to re-establish dominance over his congregation. Julius soon made another powerful announcement. Julius stood before his flock, arms raised and face tilted toward heaven. The members of the work sat silently, waiting to hear the latest pronouncement from the sinful Messiah. Finally, Julius leveled his gaze at them, piercing green eyes flashing. I am the Lord, he shouted, raising his arms. The room filled with gasps and exclamations. People fell from their chairs as if physically blown away by the news. Julius had been a prophet, then God's son, and now he was claiming to be God himself. Awed and fearful, most didn't dare doubt this dramatic shift in theology. Members had been well-trained not to question Julius. Lisa Oliver certainly knew better. Lisa's mom, who we'll call Mary, brought Lisa and her brother into the work. Mary convinced Lisa's father, who we'll refer to as Bob, to sell their home and move to a seedy roadside inn to be closer to Meriden and Julius. Unlike Mary, Bob never bought what Julius was selling, but he would do whatever it took to keep his family together. Still, he resented the time and devotion Mary gave to her beliefs at the expense of him and the kids. One night, Bob came home from work pale and in pain, calling out for Mary. 13-year-old Lisa knew something was seriously wrong with her dad. She was begging her mom to take him to the hospital. Mary refused and instead bowed her head in prayer. Julius had instructed his followers to pray over everything, from headaches to heart attacks. Every earthly struggle, mental, physical, or financial, was a sign of weakened faith. Mary prayed to Julius for hours while Bob writhed in pain. Lisa watched as all the color left his face, all the while begging for her mother to do something. Even as a child, she could tell her dad was running out of time. Finally, after hours of ineffectual prayer, Mary took Bob to the hospital. But it was too little, too late. Bob died of a heart attack. Mary came home in the early morning hours, carrying a white rose one of the nurses had given her. Lisa was devastated. But there was no comfort to be had from Julius or his other followers. Lisa and her brother were told Bob had died and gone to hell because he hardened his heart against Julius. This was the price of not believing. Apostle Bill Rocap also began to see the cracks in Julius's facade. While followers were meant to live pure lives, Julius himself was partaking in all kinds of sin, not the least of which was his special work. Bill witnessed Julius driving up to a hotel with yet another young woman from the group. They disappeared together into one of the rooms. It seemed Julius's special work went beyond the wives of his apostles, Any female, regardless of age, appeared to be up for grabs for Julius. Bill wondered what kind of God would do something like that. Not long after the incident, a friend called about a book. They told him to go to the bookstore and look up Urantia. So he did. Anonymously published in 1955, the Urantia book claimed to answer questions about God, life in the inhabited universe, the history and future of this world. Throughout the 1970s, it had become an immensely popular book in spiritual circles. 
but Bill had never heard of it. As he flipped through the 2,000-page volume, an overwhelming sense of deja vu struck him. Reading the Urantia book felt like finding Julius's Rosetta Stone. Insights Julius had claimed to have received from God filled page after page. The cracks of doubt had been growing, but with this final discovery, the facade had shattered. Julius was a complete fraud. Bill announced he'd be leaving the work. For someone so highly regarded, the news sent shockwaves throughout the group. Julius was even more furious than usual and showed up at Bill's house in the middle of the night. Julius threw out every threat and curse he could come up with, but Bill no longer felt God's wrath in his words. To him, Julius seemed like nothing more than a petulant child. You're not the Messiah, Bill screamed back at Julius. You're not a sinful Messiah, you're just a sinful man. Unfortunately, though Bill's eyes were finally clear, his wife still wholly believed in Julius. She refused to walk away from her God, even for her husband. After Bill left the group, his wife filed for divorce. Despite the initial blow from the loss of Bill, the first few years of the 1980s were a status quo for Julius. He continued to abuse his followers mentally and emotionally. Through his special work with the females of the group, Julius had claimed seven women as his concubines. Some referred to them as his wives. Meanwhile, Joanne and Paul were still profiting handsomely off their unpaid real estate agents and construction workers. In 1983, however, at least one of their schemes blew up in their faces. Paul and Joanne Sweetman were arrested and charged with defrauding the Connecticut Department of Labor of $40,000. Rather than pay salaries, the two had allegedly required 23 of their employees to file for unemployment benefits. But their punishment was little more than a slap on the wrist. The court granted them accelerated rehabilitation, which came with one year of probation and a restitution payment. It's unclear whether the state required them to pay employees properly or simply barred them from the unemployment system. The criminal charges were ultimately erased from their records. But this was only the beginning of the legal trouble. The truth of Brother Julius's depravity was about to be revealed. Thanks to the bravery of the women Julius overlooked, the world would soon find out how sinful this Messiah truly was. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Brother Julius and the Work. We'll discuss the collapse of Julius's empire as Paul and Joanne vie for control with murderous results. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast. 
Every Thursday on Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition, we're uncovering secrets hidden deep within the archives of the Central Intelligence Agency to bring you a special collection of episodes from shows across our network. Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.